0: Part One of Chapter Five of Our Journey to Sinai by Agnes Bensley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Part One of Chapter Five Our Life in the Garden. The treasure for whose sake we had come so far was now in our midst, and it naturally became the pivot on which our daily life revolved. The perfect light of that cloudless sky was essential to the work in the misty atmosphere of england it would have been impossible and the very best artificial light we had only two candlesticks between us would not have sufficed professor bensley mr burkett and mr harris divided their nine or ten hours of daylight into three regular watches and the work of recovering the obliterated text went on without intermission quite early in the morning "'one of our washstands was raised to the dignity of writing-desk. "'It was put in the garden to catch the first rays of the sun, "'and the book was taken out of the silken cover "'in which we enveloped it every night. "'Mostly my husband undertook the first watch, "'wrapped in his greatcoat with comforter and woolen gloves, "'for the nights were still frosty in February. "'A kind of hallowed circle was kept around that little table all day.' where no interruption was allowed to intrude, though loving hands were ever ready to sharpen the pencil or refill the inkstand, to hold down the leaves when the wind was high, or reach Bibles and dictionaries that found no room on the narrow board. Our servants soon felt the importance of the task. Early coffee and extra meals were willingly prepared for the faithful workmen, who had to forego the family breakfast or luncheon the monks when they passed through our grounds to their lower plantations and gardens looked wonderingly at these wizards from the north who paid so much attention to the yellow parchments which their owners could neither read nor appreciate now and then one of them stood with bated breath behind the chair and watched the pen of the ready writer but neither servant nor monk dared speak to the student on duty any more than on shipboard to the man at the wheel. Meanwhile, the dragoman, the cook, and the waiters had settled comfortably in the corner near the well. They had worked hard for us during the journey, hardest after reaching the tents in the evening, when they, too, were tired by riding all day. But here Ahmed increased his staff by an elderly Arab who acted as kitchen-maid, and by an impish little boy who was supposed to look after the poultry and they all enjoyed many hours of ideal oriental repose by sitting cross-legged on their mats and smoking their pipes in the sunshine our turkeys and chickens also led a pleasurable life in the orchard where abundance of last year's olives was to be found by scraping in the dry and sunny soil They fattened visibly, and there was no lack of new-laid eggs for the breakfast table. Our tents, no longer struck every morning, assumed more civilized manners. They stood facing each other with an open space in the midst that was leveled and swept with scrupulous care by the black son of Ahmed. Our clothes and books, instead of being crammed into saddlebags and strewn about the floor, were neatly arranged on hooks around the tent, or piled on rush-bottomed chairs which the monks had kindly added to our scant stock of furniture. The large bread chest, with a red cloth to cover it, made a fine sideboard for the dining room, and our menu was varied by fresh vegetables from the gardens, and by occasional presents from the monks, compressed dates, quince jam, and a delicious kind of date wine manufactured in the convent. At dinner, after sunset, we all reassembled and the incidents of the day were discussed in lively conversation. Ahmed came in with dessert. A handsome man, in picturesque attire, he never looked better than on those occasions, when he stood at the back of the tent, with the light full on his dark intelligent features, and began to tell us his wonderful stories. He told of travels by land and sea, of the pilgrimage to Mecca, and the battle of Tel el-Kabir, fairy tales like those in the Arabian Nights, amusing anecdotes of priests and pashas outwitted by simple fellaheen, and weird legends about the evil eye, in whose power the most enlightened Mohammedans seemed firmly to believe. On moonless nights a lantern was lit in the little square to show us the way to our beds, and we retired early to our rest, hearing only seldom, as in a dream, the tinkling of the bell that called the poor monks to their vigils. The palimpsest contained about three hundred pages, of which a third fell to each of the transcribers. Mr. Harris was an indefatigable copyist, and his tale of lines outran in the end that of his competitors, while they took upon themselves, besides their allotted task, the important work of revision, when many a doubtful letter and difficult reading yielded to their united endeavors. And yet these insatiable scholars were not content with the palimpsest alone— Daily, for several hours, the abbot attended in the archbishop's room, and produced his treasures from the hidden closet, an armful at a time. Copious notes and extracts were made, with a view to further publications. And not only the men were at work. Mrs. Burkett helped her husband by copying old Arabic texts. Mrs. Lewis and Mrs. Gibson made elaborate lists of all the Arabic and Syriac manuscripts in the convent. They have since been published at Cambridge, and form a valuable foundation for further research. Even I, by far the most ignorant of the party, was allowed to handle the curious old books. I could not read a line of them, but I learned to distinguish different ages in parchment and paper, and to mark how from century to century the shapes of the alphabet vary i helped mrs gibson to count and smooth the leaves of her arabic volumes and i ended by copying successfully a manuscript of palestinian syriac though without understanding the meaning of the words after a while the abbot partly to please mrs lewis partly to shorten his own hours of attendance, proposed that these books also should be taken into the garden to be numbered and catalogued at our convenience. And henceforth, every morning, one of the laborers employed in the yard came down with his hod full of manuscripts and emptied it in front of the tents. It is not astonishing that under similar treatment so many valuable records of antiquity have been lost or mutilated. My husband, who had been for many years librarian in Cambridge, felt a pang at his heart whenever he saw those coveted volumes tumbling from the basket. But a better time has come for the library on Sinai. Much attention was called to the place by the reports of our journey, and the Archbishop in Cairo, though indifferent to the gospel of st peter showed a most practical interest in the new discovery he banished himself for nine months to the convent and superintended the workmen in person one of the old vacant rooms was thoroughly restored and even furnished with glass to the windows the manuscripts now are all neatly arranged according to number and size and our palimpsest reposes under a glass lid in a beautifully carved box of Spanish mahogany made in Cambridge and sent out by Mrs. Lewis. Every facility is given to scholars who wish to consult the collection at stated hours in the presence of a monk, but no book is allowed to leave the room, and the worm-eaten chests and the gardener's hod have alike become things of the past. A better time for the library, certainly, yet for our personal comfort, the laxity, or rather the absence of all rules in 1893, was an unspeakable advantage. Slowly but steadily, letter upon letter and line upon line, by the help of sharp glasses and chemical agents, the long-lost gospels, were brought to light there were indeed day by day new doubts and new difficulties lost pages long gaps unknown words and shapeless letters there were aching eyes also and burning brows but on the whole the work prospered beyond expectation and with all these hours of patient toil there was hardly a day but had some special interest of its own the walks in the rocky valley and the secret water-springs, the towering granite above and the well-tended gardens below, the different sets of pilgrims and the passing caravans, the economy of the convent and our friendship with the greek monk Nicodemus, the habits of the Bedouin women, the traders with the skins of wild animals, and the beggars to be fed at the gate, all was new and wonderful in our eyes and time was all too short to comprehend it. Soon after our arrival, some twenty or thirty Russian pilgrims came to the convent, apparently small farmers or peasant proprietors, men and women, led by the headman, Starost, from some village in the southern steppes. They were comfortably clothed, the men in fur-trimmed coats and caps, the women in heavy woolen skirts, and jackets with bright-colored aprons, and neatly folded handkerchiefs over their heads and shoulders. They had guides and camels, and plenty of provisions, and blankets and pillows for camping out in the desert. And altogether there was about them an air of rustic prosperity, though they traveled without tents, and most of the men had made the journey on foot. They had started from their distant homes at the beginning of winter, on a pilgrimage of several months to sinai and palestine probably assisted by wealthy landowners for whom they had to offer up vicarious prayers at different shrines here they were most hospitably received by the monks lodged in their guest chambers entertained at their table and escorted to all the sacred sites of the neighbourhood we went to see them at dinner in the refectory a low vaulted hall lighted by a large opening in the roof with a little altar and burning candles at one end and a wooden pulpit halfway down the side monks and pilgrims sat together at the rough uncovered tables and ate with a vigorous appetite large bowls of a savoury mess and huge brown loaves were pushed along the board and a merry clatter of platters and spoons accompanied the monotonous voice of the priest in the pulpit, who read a Greek homily during the meal. After dinner, the whole company, including our party, stood in groups near the altar, where one of the monks intoned a short service of praise, then followed the agape of the eastern churches. A priest went round with a plateful of bread and gave us each a piece of it. A second priest brought a goblet of wine and gave us to drink and chanting of prayers and responses went on all the while until we were dismissed with a blessing the rite was very much like that of the lord's supper in the reformed churches of germany but it was not the sacrament of the church on mount sinai that was celebrated early in the morning with a grand mass at the high altar The abbot would have admitted us, but we did not wish to intrude, and contented ourselves with some other services on Sunday, when incense and vestments, tapers and bell-ringing formed a great part of the proceedings. The pilgrims stayed about a week at the convent, very quietly, but the day of their departure was exciting enough. Bedouin and camels had been summoned to carry them on their way to Jerusalem and as usual on such occasions nearly twice the required number had assembled at the gate early in the morning they crowded into the yard each man insisted on being employed seized in the general scramble on some of the scattered boxes and packages proclaimed with violent gesticulations that his camel was sufficiently loaded and clamoured to set out on his journey there was no dragoman to keep order and the poor russians were helpless in the hands of their numerous escort but nicodemus came to the rescue his eye and his voice seemed to carry authority with them he selected a number of camels and drivers for the caravan and expelled the others from the premises claiming obedience in the abbot's name and enforcing it when necessary by sounding blows from his staff which nobody dared to resent They retired with scowling faces and muttered curses, but without further signs of resistance, and those who remained were compelled to carry their allotted amount, however loudly they might protest that a neighbor's beast was less heavily weighted. He went from one to the other, helping here to lift a load, there to undo a knot, and, by his pleasant words and ready wit, managed to restore peace and goodwill between the pilgrims and their guides but it was past midday before they were ready to start accompanied by one of the russian monks to act as arbiter in case they should fall out by the way the women mounted their camels and filed down the valley but the men stepped one after the other upon the rocky platform at the opposite side of the road and lifting their arms unto heaven prayed aloud for a blessing on the convent. Two of the women had to stay behind. The one, exhausted by previous exertions, was not well enough to continue the journey. The other acted as nurse and chaperone, until they were both able to join a small caravan to Tor, a little seaport in the south of the peninsula, the invalid required perfect rest and such restoratives as nicodemus prescribed and the convent afforded but her friend walked in the gardens and came to our tents and as i was not occupied with literary labors it fell to my lot to take her round the camp she was a middle-aged woman of splendid physique with a broad forehead and thoughtful countenance she was apparently of a very placid or even stolid temperament Nothing seemed to astonish or surprise her, though almost everything, from the Union Jack overhead to the Persian rug underfoot, must have been new and strange to her. I took her to the cook's department and showed her our English vessels and baking tins, and our little cakes and sweetmeats, just fresh from the oven. Yet her features remained immovable. But all at once, A large cauliflower in the gardener's basket caught her attention. She took it in her arms and pressed it to her bosom, her face suffused with smiles and her eyes brimming over with tears. Did it remind her of a far-off garden and of loving hands that tended it in her absence? We could not speak to each other, but our thoughts seemed to meet, and we shook hands warmly at parting one touch of nature maketh the whole world kin. On the last Sunday before Lent, the abbot and the steward came down to dine with us. We had sacrificed our fattest turkey in their honor, and the old abbot fairly shrieked with delight when that goodly dish appeared on the board, clapping his hands and smacking his lips until better employed with the portion on his plate. The steward smiled pleasantly at his superior's enjoyment as you might smile at a frolicsome child he nicodemus was not a regular inmate of the place but sent here by the archbishop to put the affairs of the monastery into order to be transferred next year to another house for a similar purpose born at athens and educated for the priesthood he had travelled in distant countries and spoke three or four languages with ease HE WAS NOW IN HIS PRIME A TRUE SON OF HIS CHURCH AND HIS ORDER, IN ALL HUMILITY AND OBEDIENCE, YET WITHAL OF A LIBERAL AND TOLERANT MIND. HE WOULD HAVE MADE A MARK IN ANY PROFESSION, AND SEEMED SOMEWHAT OUT OF PLACE IN THIS WILDERNESS AMONG HIS SIMPLE AND IGNORANT BRETHREN. IT HAS BEEN SAID THAT SINAI IS A KIND OF REFORMATORY, where monks from other countries are sent to expiate their offences in solitude and privation. As far as we could see, our monks were docile, gentle, and industrious. They did not indeed spend many hours in study, but they had not much time to be idle, being of necessity their own bakers and brewers, their own tailors and shoemakers, masons and carpenters. The large orchards and gardens also not only here but on other slopes of the mountain gave them plenty of occupation towards us they were ever respectful and kind one old man was busy morning after morning trimming and pruning the vines on the terrace below us we stood by for some time watching with pleasure how deftly he used his scissors when he suddenly dropped them and ran away as fast as his old legs would carry him we were afraid of having offended him but he soon returned with a basket of beautiful raisins which he presented to us as the fruit of these his own particular vines nicodemus himself was hard at work he had to attend to repairs in the church to new plantations of fruit trees and to the clearing and deepening of the channels that bring water down from the mountain or he was absent for days together, arranging for the necessary supplies of flour and fuel and cloth, which the camels of the convent have to fetch from Suez or from Tor. Only seldom was he at leisure to come at dusk to the tents and share our afternoon tea. Those were pleasant half-hours for all of us, the feast of reason and the flow of soul, and we often wondered what part nicodemus would yet have to play in the church of the east one evening ahmed brought a little visitor with him to the dining-tent Ayid, the boy who had led mrs Burkett's camel remembering how she enjoyed the goat's milk in the camp of Mokatab, the child had filled a large glass bottle a flask thrown aside by some foreign traveller with milk from his mother's goats had stoppered it with a twisted rag, and carried it for eight hours across the desert as a freewill offering to his princess. He had only just arrived, and looked very hot and very tired, but supremely happy when Mrs. Burkett thanked him for his thoughtfulness, and we all praised him for his pluck. I need not say that he had a good supper, and was put to bed in the most comfortable corner of the dragoman's tent, We wished him to rest for a day, but he was anxious to go in the morning. His mother might miss him, and he wanted to water his camel. Mrs. Burkett gave him a large English shawl, which he draped at once dexterously round his slim little figure. One corner was over his head, and he looked proudly over his shoulder at the fringes that dangled at his heels as he went merrily on his way down the long valley. We mothers watched the solitary child with saddening eyes until he disappeared among the rocks. Yet he was a true son of the desert, seeing no danger in its loneliness, and happy enough that morning with a new cloak, with plenty of provisions for the journey, and with the hope of leading his beloved mistress for another glorious ten days across the desert. But that dream was not to be fulfilled. Hardly a week later, Ahmed told us, with tears in his honest eyes, that little Aid's camel was dead, killed by the evil eye, the envious eye of some neighbor to whom the boy had related in childish glee the story of his good fortune in Sinai. We found the same belief in the bane of the evil eye among the poor women that came for bread to the convent, they carefully covered the little brown faces of their babies, lest we should injure them by coveting their beauty. Twice every week at noon, baskets of bread were let down from a window in the outer wall, and hungry hands were ever ready to receive them. Soon after sunrise on those well-known days, women and children came up from the surrounding valleys and waited patiently for the time of the loaves. The children played at hide-and-seek among the rocks and made a rush for backsheesh whenever we appeared at the gate, but the women sat listless on the stones by the well. Their husbands were, most of them, in the service of the monks, tending their camels, watering their plantations, or escorting pilgrims to and fro in the desert. For nearly a year no rain had fallen in this district. The wells were drying up The herbage failed, camels and goats were moving further south, and several camps in the neighborhood had already been deserted. The remaining families seemed to be destitute, depending for their maintenance on the bounty of the convent. We tried to talk to the women at the well and to win their hearts by bringing them biscuits and sweets for their children, but only succeeded in making a couple of them into most impudent beggars. They followed us up and down the road, took hold of our clothes, and put their hands in our pockets to see what we had brought for them. A piece of sugar, a crust of bread, a bit of string, or an old button, nothing came amiss to them. But their great desire, as indeed that of every Bedouin, was for shawls and handkerchiefs. These make turbans and belts for the men, cloaks and veils for the women, and form the whole wardrobe of their infants we gave away all we could spare and were sorry that we had not brought an extra supply of them end of part one of chapter five